you know, we come tonight to what is quite possibly the most famous verse in like maybe all of the Bible. I mean, you see it in baseball games on, uh, you know, rubber bracelets, uh, 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 what do you call them, Ta- yeah, tattoos, and I heard uh, Tim Tebow's eye thing, you know, uh, John 3.16. Uh, it might be one of the only verses that you, maybe as a kid, if you grew up around the church and around Bible, and the Bible that you memorized, and... Um, and it's a wonderful verse. It's a very dear verse. Um, it's a very sweet verse. And so we're going to look at that tonight. And yet, I think that despite its cultural familiarity, that uh, there's still something that the broader culture yet knows nothing of. You see, it's one thing to know a reference. It's an entirely different thing to know uh, what that reference is actually talking about. You know what I mean? And so I'm really excited tonight to be able to look at that. Now, I want to start with a little bit uh, of a little bit of an illustration here. Uh, I really like to uh, work out. Uh, you can probably tell, I'm sure. Uh, hold your hold your comments, Peanut Gallery. Um, but uh, here here lately, I've not been able to because I have uh, an old man's back and uh, an old man's knee, and my wrist hurts, and my wife is always sick of me complaining, and so uh, I ache a lot. So I'm not able to get into the gym, but. Um, I, I will tell you this, that um, the way that I often think about the gym is the more I'm in there, the more I'm paying my dues, the more I'm exercising, uh, the more that I will finally sort of arrive. I don't know if y'all ever feel like that. You know, if I can just burn off this many more calories, if I can just get this sort of, you know, put on this much more weight on my bench press or something like that, that like if I work hard enough, if I can just sort of pour it on, then I finally will get to where I need to be. I will finally be acceptable to the gym elites and the cultural elites, whoever they are and wherever they exist. The idea is is that if I put in enough work, uh, I'll finally be acceptable in that world. Um, Not only that world, but myself. Well, um, I think that that is actually something that uh, we can see is pretty constant in a vast majority in the vast areas of our life. one of the things that I want you guys to begin to think about is that we often conceive of God in that way too. Hang with me. Say, what are you talking about? Like, i got to work out to get Him to like me? No, 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 that's not it. But what I think is, is that a lot of the times we believe that if I put in the hard work, I'll finally be acceptable. If I, if I read my Bible enough, if I come to RUF enough, uh, if I do enough student ministry deals at, on TCU's campus, uh, then I'll finally, 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 if I give, 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 if I, if I give it all, um, then I'll finally be able to be acceptable uh, to God. And I just want to show you tonight that it's for that reason that this idea that if I work hard enough and that if I can do enough, if I give enough for God, that He'll finally accept me. And I want to show you tonight that John three sixteen to 21 is written with that in mind, and it offers us great, great hope tonight. Because, you see, what lies at the very heart of Christianity is not what we give God, but rather what God gives to us. What lies at the heart of Christianity, y'all, is not what we give God, but what God gives to us. Now, what is it for you? You see, what, is, what are the things that if you look at your life and you say, if I could just do this, I'd finally... You know, imagine, imagine you're, you're, you're rolling up to a monastery or something like that, and you knock on the door and you sort of say, here I am, and what is behind you that you bring, right? 
what is behind you that you bring that you're going to lay at the foot of the altar somewhere and finally say, here it is, God, I have brought it to you. And, and here it is, and when, it, and when I'm done with it, I'll finally get you. You see, I actually think that that's very common for all of us. And it, it's going to be different for all of us too, but I want to show you this, that it is very true that what lies at the heart of Christianity is not what we give God but what God gives to us. And that's why we have this wonderful, wonderful text tonight. What does this text tell us about what God, about God and what He makes of our worst moments? Perhaps you've been there. You know what your worst moments are like. What does He think about us then? What does He think when we are at our lowest, when we are trying, as it were, to bring our best? What is it that God makes of us when we are trying our darndest to make it and to give it up for Him. Well, this is going to show us. It's going to stand before us tonight as a beacon shining on the deepest part of God's very heart. But unlike unlike you giving anything to God, He will sort of turn the tables and show us about this amazing, this amazing love that He has for us. So, what is it that God gives? Well, first of all, the answer begins to come a bit more clearer as we consider Jesus' words in that very famous verse, of 16. It is said that God gives us something to find our way back to God. Now at this point, you may think, oh, I know what it is. I I know what it is. Um, I know what I'm supposed to give God. I'm supposed to give God a code of ethics or a way of obedience. If I could just sort of keep my life straight, that that's the thing that I'm supposed to give God. I'm like, I want to tell you, again, you got to get out of your head, right? that you're giving anything to God. Look at the verse 16 here. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. And then look again at verse 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Imagine the child, y'all. The child that uh, has stole something from a candy store, right? And um, uh, what happens is, is that the father finds out and the child knows that the father knows. And the child cowers back in his bedroom, fearing the day that the father will come back there and literally take off his belt and take it out on him. Now, I would like to suggest to you that many of you uh, have a vision of God just like that. That you think that the whole reason that God exists is to pull his belt off and to wear you out. It is to, as it were, proverbially take the back of your head and to rub your nose in all of the wrong things that you have been doing with your life. I'm reminded of this recent phenomenon on uh, social media. How many of y'all, I think, I can't remember the girl's last name, but she got on a plane to fly to Africa. She She sent out a tweet to 170 followers, not many at all. By the time 11 hours later she landed and she turned her phone back on, a hun- literally hundreds of thousands of people on Twitter had been saying, we're going to cost this girl her job, we're going to lose the, you know, she's going to lose her job, and she ended up losing it. She was sort of this victim of like public shaming. Now her tweet was not the best thing to say, I will say that. But I will say this, that I think that most of us think that God exists like that. That he looks into the deepest, darkest parts of our worst moments. Y'all know what I mean by worst moments? Those moments where you're like, if anybody treated me at my worst, I'm done for. 
And we often think that that's what God does, that He looks at us at our worst moments, rubs our nose in it, or He takes the proverbial belt off to condemn us. But do you notice what the text says? It says very plainly there, right? It says what? That God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Now, I want you to turn over in your Bibles if you have them. Go ahead and turn over to John chapter 12 because we need to make some sense of something. In John chapter 12, in a very interesting uh, verse, um, he says that uh, if anyone hears my words, I'm in verse 47, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. So there it is again, right? Same author, same deal. But in a very interesting place, we need to be able to hold intention with what he says um, in in chapter 9, verse 39. Same Jesus same words. Here it is. Ready? 939. If you've, got your word, if you've got your Bible. Here it is. For judgment I came into the world. Uh-oh. Now what do we do? Because it seems like Jesus is talking out of both sides of His mouth. Is He coming to judge the world or not? Is He coming to save the world or not? And I think the best way to resolve that is, imagine you had a, uh, you know, you had an, a disease on your, on your hand or something like that. Like you had gangrene or something. Your hand was rotting, you know were sick or something, and the doctor came to you, and you knew that your doc, the doctor was potentially going to have to amputate your arm. And he, he looks at, you look at him and you say, are you going to cut off my arm? Which would be an act of judgment, right? Something you don't want. But the doctor looks at you and he says, no, I'm here to save your life. I'm here to save your life. But the judgment is, the grace is always, the rescue is always through judgment. The judgment is never the primary thing that God has come into the world to do. And I just want to simply say this, that if you have a view of God, or if you are a non-Christian, and you reject the view of God, that's the God that says, I don't believe in that angry God who has come to rub everybody's noses in it, to pull the belt off the waistband, and to wear people out. If that's the God that you've rejected, I want to say this, you've not rejected Christianity. I don't know what you've rejected, but you've not rejected Christianity. The picture of Christianity is that God comes and that He gives us Jesus. And the end of the picture is, is ultimately, from this first point that I want to show you, is that Jesus, y'all, He saves. He does not come to condemn. He comes to bring life and salvation. And why would that be so important for us? Well, I think of this. This is why. How you conceive of who God is will always, always affect how you respond to Him. You see, if you have a God that's a genie in the bottle, waiting on every wish for you to make, we'll only come to Him when we need something, and yet we will be angry and ticked at Him when He doesn't give us what we want. If you come to God as God as a policeman in the sky, you know, this sort of like law in the sky sort of deal, we'll be like Martin Luther, who we heard about a few weeks ago, who hated God, because you can never measure up to His commands. If God is my therapist, I might come to Him when I'm sorrowful or hurting, but I'll soon grow disillusioned and cynical when I've got no one to defend me from the real hurts that are sure to come in my life. But if I have a God who saves me from my sin, the very thing that God must punish, and brings me to Himself, we all listen, then my life is changed. It, it literally makes me a new person, a new man or a new woman. And this means, y'all, 
that perfection isn't what gets God to love us and listen. Perfection is not what gets God to love us. And this is amazing. And it means that our sin, because of Christ, can't keep us from God. And that is powerful. That's exactly what this verse is trying to get at. There are no perfect Christians, only messy ones. Well, did you notice as well, what is the way or the manner that Jesus goes about this saving? How is this gift of salvation, in other words, made possible for you and for me? Well, I think before we answer that question, we need to understand this concept of sin and why it is such a problem in the first place. Now, I don't know about you. You all live on a college campus. You traffic with your peers and your colleagues more than I do. But I know in my age group, sin is not a popular idea anymore, okay? It's got a, it's got a bad rap, and maybe so for some reason. But listen to what I think is really happening. Many of it don't even mention it, and it's, it's unsophisticated, and it's primitive to even think about it. Um, <clears throat> but something interesting happened in uh, the year 1973. How many of y'all are familiar with the American psychiatrist, the guy named by the name of Dr. Carl Menninger? Anybody know that name? Got one back there. Okay, great. Well, Menninger was a famous American psychiatrist who specialized in treating mental disorders. His work left a profound influence on that field. He lived in a world that believed that these disorders were actually untreatable, but Menninger didn't think that that was the best way to respond uh, to who we were as persons. In 1973, he published a book called Whatever Happened to Sin? And he caught massive flack and fire from the academic world for doing so. The psychological world had all but banned the word sin from its vocabulary, seeing it as unhelpful to treat people underneath or on the basis of guilt. The notion of guilt, therefore, was therefore thought of as being psychologically hurtful to people, and so words like antisocial behavior or disease or lack of moral development began to be used instead. But he pushed back and he wrote this, I believe there is sin, which is expressed in many ways that cannot be subsumed as, quote, crime or disease, delinquency or deviancy. There is immorality. There is unethical behavior. There is wrongdoing. And I hope to show that there is usefulness in retaining the concept and indeed the sin which now shows some signs of returning into public acceptance. What is he getting at? You see, if there really is no such thing as, as, as morality, as any sort of moral bar that we, can eat, that we fail or we live up to, if you, once you remove that, there is no way that you can ever say that anything is a problem. Like you can say this, you can say if your sibling or, or somebody you love gets murdered, you, the best you can come up with was that person has antisocial behavior. The best that you can come up with is they might have some sort of psychosis going on. But don't you dare call it wrong. Don't you dare call it a problem. Don't you dare call it sin because you've removed the category altogether. Listen, I simply remove, say this to say this. Our culture has lost, listen, one of the greatest gifts that God has given us. Naming sin as sin. And here's why. This is my whole point. Ready? Without it, without it, grace will never be grace. You remove the bitterness of sin and you lose 
immediately the sweetness of God's grace. Invariably, you will lose it. And this objectively outside of us as well as subjectively too. So what does this have to do with what we were talking about? Simple. Do you see Jesus' words here in John 3? They make no sense if you don't understand that our sinful condition is what separates us from God. Did you notice what he said? That he says this in verse 20. <clears throat> he says he says that, um, I'm sorry, in verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but who does not, who, whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the Son of God. Condemned already, y'all. In short, there is no neutrality, no middle position with respect to Jesus. Either you possess eternal life now, or you stand condemned. Now, listen. I'm a pretty smart guy. And I know what I've just said on a college campus. I have just said there is no middle ground for you tonight. There is no middle ground with respect to Jesus. Either you have eternal life presently, or, I say this very seriously, you stand condemned. There is no middle ground. There is no middle ground. And why do you stand condemned? Because the Scriptures say that God is a holy God, and that He looks with white-hot purity on all imperfection, and he can have nothing to do with it. And so because of that, because of that, all sin must be punished. It must be dealt with. I want to be gentle, but I want to be honest with you. I cannot fake it up here and tell you some lie about yourself. There is one of two options. You stand condemned already, or you have been set free and you have eternal life. That's it. That's it, y'all. But listen to me. Listen. What lies at the heart of Christianity, y'all, is the fact that God gives Jesus as a substitute for our sins. That He Himself, that He Himself takes what our sins deserve for us, the very condemnation of God. Jesus, who has lived a perfect life, dies for us on the cross. And this is the pinnacle of verse 21. That is, those deeds that have been carried out by God. And y'all listen. By His substitutionary death, we are given the credit that His perfect life earned. That's how you get from condemned already over here. Because of what Jesus has done. On the cross, the love of God and the justice of God have actually met the love of God was expressed in full, i.e. the dying of the Son of God. And yet, the justice of God was expressed in full too because the Son of God had to die. You see, there it was. God's love and His justice meeting together. God loves His people so much that He died for you. And equally... God's justice is so fair, so pure, that God had to pay for you. And that's what leads the hymn writer to say this. Beautiful. Upon a life I have not lived. Upon a death I have not died. I did not die. Another's life. Another's death. I stake my whole eternity. 
Can you say that tonight? Can you say that you have staked your whole eternity on another person's life and another person's death? That's what's on offer for you tonight. And if it is something that you can say, become well acquainted with it. Live into it more. Like step further into that tonight. Trusting these great promises that come to you on, the, on, the ha- on behalf of Jesus. This brings me, y'all, to the very important point that God gave His Son as a mark of infinite love. And you see, yes, Jesus saves. But Jesus saves, y'all, by dying for, dying for us. Which leads me to this, this, this point of, of simply saying this. I want you to see that God does simply not brush sin under the table. That God is simply not playing fast and loose with how problematic sin is. And yet at the same time, because He has died for it, He has paid for it. I cannot put it in any simpler terms tonight. This is for you. That this is for you tonight. So, let's take a look then, and we ask this last sort of question here. What sort of people then does Jesus actually die for? Well, you might think the perfect, right? It's the people who have it all together. It is the people who pull up their bootstraps, right? And prove themselves before God. It is the people who really are reading their Bible the most. Or it is the people who take ten mission trips a year. Or it is the people who don't sleep with other people. Or it is the people who don't get wasted on weekends. Surely it's the perfect people that God has come to save. And the clear implications of Scripture are that, no, that's not it at all. It's in fact, it's everybody else. Which probably puts you in good company. It puts me in real good company. Look at verse 20 there. Jesus says this. He says that for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. I'm going to focus in on that word exposed in just a second. Here's the argument. Jesus says that there are people who will not come to him because they love the darkness better than light. Why? Because they know their guilt and their shame and they don't want it to be shown upon. They don't want it out. They don't want to have to acknowledge it or have to have it dealt with. And so they hide. They remain covered, as it were, in the darkness. And I think somebody that really helps us is the author, Rebecca Reynolds. She touches on this. How many of y'all saw the the most recent live-action movie of Cinderella? Really? I thought there had been a lot more than that. Oh, well, this might be a fail illustration, so hang with me. Um... There is this brilliant scene that she writes at the end of the movie. Spoiler if you haven't seen it. If you don't know the story of Cinderella, welcome to America. Um, (laughs) It's great having her as an intern, man. She'll laugh at all my jokes. Um, Cinderella asks her evil stepmother. She asks her evil stepmother why she is being so cruel. And I love this. The stepmother replies that Ella's beauty and kindness have made hatefulness more tempting instead of less. There's a sort of math to this, the writer writes. The corrupt heart cannot receive Ella's goodness because darkness hates light. And because somewhere along the way, this is brilliant, every villain stops believing that happily ever after could apply to him. And that, that is so money. That is such good stuff. Losing that one hope changes everything. And I think this helps us get understand, helps us understand what I'm getting at here. 
All of us hate God's wisdom and purity, symbolized by light here, because it exposes us. But here's what I want you to see, y'all. It's precisely here that we must be if we are ever going to taste the goodness of Christ. When John uses the word world in 3.16, when he says, For God so loved the world, he is not talking about John's use of the word cosmos, which is where we get our words cosmology and every cosmos root. It's talking about the world. And what he's saying is, is this. When he uses that word, John is saying he is talking about the fallen world that has rebelled against God. It is the God that it is the world that has turned their back against him. It is the world, in other words, that wants darkness and not light. It is the world that wants themselves and not him. We hate the light because we feel exposed and we'd rather stay in the darkness and we can't handle our vulnerability before the pure gaze of God. We're guilty and we know it, so we believe we're better off hiding. But here's what I want you to see, is that we don't need to fear. Why? Because yes, we are vulnerable. Yes, we are exposed. But this is the huge point We are safe. Why? Because in Christ, we find shelter for our vulnerability. Do you see that? We find shelter for our vulnerability. Because in His death, we live. He, illustration, on October 16th, 1987, uh, in Tempe, Arizona, there was a Northwest flight carrying 154 passengers that took off. As the plane was taking off, it began to stall and one of its wings clipped a pole by the, by the runway. The, uh, the plane's wing, if you don't know about planes, that's where the gas is stored, scored. The plane rips open, gas begins to spew, and it literally causes the, fire, the, flame, the, the, the plane to go up in flames. It crashes on a nearby street, and all 154 people died in the crash. But as the rescuers come through the wreckage, they found an injured but living, listen, four-year-old little girl. Her name was Cecilia Chichen. And at first they assumed that she was from one of the cars hit by the plane because it didn't seem that anyone, anyone had survived the crash. But her name was on the passenger manifest. And what people began to see was this. They were able to piece together how she had survived. Her mother had apparently, in the midst of the crash, unfastened her own seatbelt and climbed over the seat of her daughter, wrapping her body around her child in a cocoon of love. She absorbed the impact of the crash on her own body and saved her daughter in her death. Do you see that that is exactly what Jesus does for us? He suffers the blow for our sin that we might live. He gives us shelter and protection. He offers up a shield for us. Therefore, our vulnerability is safe with Him. And what this ultimately means is is this. Dear villain, dear villain, happily ever after really is still an offer for you. It really is. Jesus, y'all, saves by dying. For who? By dying for sinners. That is my main idea. My main point tonight is that I want you to see that the gospel is first good news and it frees us to be honest about who we are. In fact, that we're not who we hope to be. That we can admit doing things that we 
never thought that we would do because John is showing us that God gives Jesus to the world that they might be saved through Him. Jesus was given to us not to condemn us, but to save His enemies by living the life they should have lived and dying the death that they should have died. And in so doing, we get the eternal life that Jesus so freely gives. One of my seminary professors, Dr. Brian Chappell, tells the story of another professor, a guy by the name of Dr. Robert, Robert Vasholes. Dr. Vasholes was also a professor of mine, and he, was a, uh, he, was, he comes from a Jewish family, but he later converted in life and becoming a Christian. And he tells the story, um, uh, growing up in Russia, of his family having to flee from the Tsars there in the earlier part of the 20th century. And he tells this um, like, bone-chilling story. Listen to this. He says that they were being pursued by people seeking to kill them as they were fleeing the country. And as they, were, as they were being pursued, the families, they were sort of all together leaving, but they had found a shelter for a moment, a hidden spot where the pursuers were to soon pass by. And as they were sitting there, waiting and hiding, I mean, literally just hearing the footsteps, can you imagine? That something uh, amazing happened. Um, a baby in their company started to cry. And um, they knew that if this baby continued to cry, the pursuers, um, sure enough, sure enough, the pursuers would soon find the family and it would mean the death for every single one of them. And Chapel uh, tells the story that in order to, perfect, to protect the family, that they took the baby and they held it underwater. And you know what? That child died so that the family would live. True story. And Chapel goes on to say this, that if you perceived the child's death as saving family, you would rightly perceive part of the gospel, but not all of it. But to perceive the gospel rightly, you'd have to understand what God did. He took the child and killed it for the pursuers. That's what, that's what the gospel is all about. You and me, people who don't, who don't care a lick about God, apart from His saving grace in our life, God comes to us and He says, come, freely come, freely come. I have borne it all. I have taken it all that you might have life. That's the promise of the gospel tonight. I urge you, I urge you tonight, I rarely do this, but I urge you, if this is something that you want, if this is something that you long to have in your heart, in your life, I urge you to come talk to me afterwards. I'll be glad to sit with you and talk with you about this. But this is the most important news that you will ever have to deal with. But it's also the greatest news that you'll ever have to deal with. Because it means that God has given Himself for you. Let's pray. Our Father in Heaven, we thank You for this wonderful, wonderful message that God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Thank You, O Lord, that You love Your enemies, that You come and die for them. And O Lord, we're grateful for that tonight. Help us to sing of this marvelous grace, we pray. It's in Your name. Amen.